from New York, this is Democracy Now! The choice is choice. Democrats and supporters of reproductive rights have scored major victories across the country as Ohio votes to enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution. Kentucky's Democratic governor wins re-election and Democrats in Virginia gain control of the General Assembly, meaning they have control of both houses of the legislature. We'll get the latest. Then the House of Representatives has voted to censure Rashida Tlaib, the only Palestinian American member of Congress over her criticism of Israel's month-long bombardment of Gaza. We'll hear Rashida Tlaib in her own words. Speaking up to save lives, Mr. Chair, no matter faith, no matter ethnicity, should not be controversial in this chamber. The cries of the Palestinian and, ch- Palestinian and Israeli children sound no different to me. Why? What? I don't understand is why the cries of Palestinians sound different to you all. Then is Israel on the verge of committing genocide in Gaza? We'll speak to Omer Bartov, an Israeli-American professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Brown University, and an 87-year-old Holocaust survivor named Marian Ingram. She's been protesting outside the White House, calling for a Gaza ceasefire. I feel great empathy. Uh, for the Gazans uh, who are suffering the same horrors uh, I experienced. I feel uh, sick at the idea that children are being murdered. Uh, I not only call for a ceasefire, I want a ceasefire now. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israel said Tuesday its forces are operating in the heart of Gaza City and, quote, tightening the noose as horrors continue to multiply for Palestinians in the besieged enclave. An estimated 15,000 people fled northern Gaza Tuesday, as the U.N. says one and a half million people, more than half of Gaza's population, have now been displaced. Over 10,000 people have been killed, nearly half of them children. The International Committee of the Red Cross says aid vehicles are being targeted as hospitals run out of life-saving medical supplies. Aerial bombardments throughout the Gaza Strip continue. This is a resident of Khan Yunus, an area that was supposed to be safe, speaking after Israeli airstrikes leveled homes and killed at least 23 people Tuesday morning. It's a genocide. They strike the houses and don't care about children, women, elderly people, men. They don't care. No one cares about us in this whole world. I don't know why there is silence, why the world is silent. They are children, girls. We are not living. We need a solution. Either kill us all or let us live. Medicine Sans Frontieres, that's Doctors Without Borders, is mourning the death of their medical technician, Mohammed Al-Ahel, who was killed along with several family members November 6 in Israel's bombing of the Al-Shati refugee camp. Outside the Knesset in Jerusalem, mourners gathered Tuesday night to mark one month since Hamas's attack in Israel, which killed up to 1,400 people. Mourners called for the release of some 240 hostages still being held. This is Hannah Katzman, whose son, Chaim, was killed by Hamas October 7th. My son, Chaim, was killed on October 
October 7th was murdered by Hamas terrorists on his kibbutz in Khalid. I'm here, I, before October 7th, I came to demonstrations against the government, and I'm, I still feel that the government is not representing my interests, and I'm very concerned about the, many of their actions. I want, I would like Netanyahu to take responsibility for this. I'd like him to tell us how he's going to prevent this from happening. You can see our interview with Noah Katzman, Chaim sibling at democracynow.org, as well as his rabbi in Seattle, Washington, where Chaim was a graduate student at the University of Washington. Members of the G7 today called for humanitarian pauses in the fighting. Their joint statement also condemns Hamas and supports Israel's right to self-defense. Meanwhile, the White House has ruled out the ongoing occupation of Gaza post-conflict after Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Monday Israel will take indefinite security responsibility over Gaza. National Security spokesperson John Kirby said Biden believes, quote, a reoccupation by Israeli forces of Gaza is not the right thing to do, unquote. Blink spoke after a G7 meeting earlier today in Tokyo. When it comes to post-conflict uh, governance in Gaza, um, a few things are, are clear and necessary. One, uh, Gaza cannot be con uh, continue to be run by Hamas. Um, uh, that simply invites a repetition of October 7th, uh, and Gaza uses a place from which to launch terrorist attacks. Uh, it's also clear that Israel cannot occupy Gaza. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli soldiers and settlers have continued to intensify their attacks on Palestinians, with over 150 killed since October 7th. Hundreds of Palestinians have been forcibly displaced from their homes and lands due to violent threats by Israeli settlers. More than 1,400 Palestinians have been arrested by Israeli forces in the last month, including the prominent human rights activist Ahed Tamimi, who was taken into custody Monday after another round of overnight Israeli raids and fighting in the West Bank. Ahed is being accused of inciting terrorism and calling for the killing of Israeli settlers on social media. Her mother, Nariman Tamimi, denied her daughter ever wrote such posts and said there are dozens of imposter social media accounts. She described the moment Ahed was taken from their family home. They came and started yelling at us, and she hugged me and she told me not to be afraid. And she said, I am strong, and do not worry. You are all strong. Don't worry, my dear mother. Then they came and pulled us apart. Ahed's father was also arrested to see our interview with Ahed Tamimi several years ago after she was held for months by the Israeli military. You can go to democracynow.org. In Washington, D.C., the House of Representatives voted Tuesday to censure Michigan Democrat Rashida Tlaib, the only Palestinian-American member of Congress. Twenty-two Democrats joined Republicans in backing the resolution, which falsely accuses Tlaib of calling for the destruction of the state of Israel and defending Hamas's actions October 7th. Tlaib addressed her colleagues on the House floor Tuesday, flanked by fellow progressives who've signed on to Cori Bush's resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Trying to bully or censor me won't work because this movement for a ceasefire is much bigger than one person. It's growing every single day.
There are millions of people across our country who oppose Netanyahu's extremism and are done watching our government support collective punishment and the use of white phosphorus bombs that melt flesh to the bone. They are done watching our government, Mr. Chair, supporting cutting off food, water, electricity, and medical care to millions of people with nowhere to go. Like me, Mr. Chair, they don't believe the answer to war crimes is more war crimes. To to see Rashida Tlaib's full speech, we will be broadcasting it later in the broadcast. Abortion rights activists and Democrats scored big in Tuesday's elections, and Ohio voters approved with a double-digit margin a measure to establish the right to an abortion in the state constitution. Ohioans also voted in favor of legalizing recreational marijuana. In Virginia, Democrats regained control of the full legislature, holding on to the Senate and flipping the House of Delegates. The victory will block Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin from enacting parts of his far-right agenda, including a ban on abortions after 15 weeks. One of the Virginia Democrats claiming victory is Danica Rome, who will become the Commonwealth's first openly transgender state senator. In Kentucky, voters kept pro-choice incumbent Democrat Andy Bashir in the governor's office as he fended off a challenge from Trump-endorsed Attorney General Daniel Cameron. His win, however, will not change the near-total ban on abortions imposed by Kentucky's Supreme Court. In Mississippi, the Republican incumbent Governor Tate Reeves defeated the Democratic candidate Brandon Presley, cousin of Elvis Presley, who was anti-choice. In Pennsylvania, Democrat Dan McCaffrey won an open seat on the state Supreme Court, beating out an anti-abortion candidate. Also in Pennsylvania, Democrat Sherelle Parker will become the first black woman and the first woman mayor of Philadelphia. Here in New York, exonerated Central Park Five member Yusuf Salam won his Harlem race for city council. Salam was one of five black and Latino teenagers wrongfully convicted of the 1989 beating and rape of a white woman. At the time, Donald Trump called for their ex- execution. Yusuf Salam spent seven years in jail before being exonerated when the real perpetrator confessed. In Iran, imprisoned Nobel Peace Prize laureate and human rights advocate Nargis Mohammadi has begun a hunger strike protesting the lack of medical care and the mandatory hijab policy for Iranian women. Mohammadi is refusing to wear a headscarf, even in her confinement. In retaliation, prison officials have denied Mohammadi's request to be transferred to a hospital where she can receive urgent care for her heart and lung conditions. Mohammadi recently smuggled a letter out of the notorious Evin prison in Tehran. This is her 17-year-old daughter, Kiana Ramani, reading Mohammadi's message to the world. The world observes that the revolutionary movement of women, life, freedom continues its campaign and resistance in Iran and is a hard struggle for the survival and the real life of society. The strength of this movement lies in the agency of Iranian women. We assuredly know what we want far better than what we do not want. We believe in it, commit to it, and we're certain of victory. A special U.N. committee tasked with helping implement a loss and damage fund for countries almost affected by the climate catastrophe, most affected by it, has hashed out key provisions to fulfill the breakthrough deal after nearly a year of negotiations. At a meeting in Abu Dhabi over the weekend, countries agreed to have the World Bank temporarily administer the fund, which critics say will give the United States and other wealthy countries too much influence over the fund. The U.S., one of the world's worst polluters, has notoriously opposed the loss and damage agreement reached at the 
U.N. Climate Summit in Egypt last year. The fund's initial target size is expected to be about $500 million, far lower than the trillions of dollars that would be needed for countries to cope with the damage of climate disasters in the years to come. Global leaders will be asked to ratify the plan when they meet for COP28 in Dubai starting later this month, ahead of the fund's planned launch in 2024. Democracy Now! will be broadcasting from Dubai for the U.N. Climate Summit. A former Facebook employee turned whistleblower testified before a Senate panel Tuesday on the harmful effects of social media on children and teens. Arturo Bajar told senators Meta abides by a culture of see no evil, hear no evil, despite executives being repeatedly told the algorithms that keep users hooked on Facebook and Instagram push content that promotes bullying, drug abuse, eating disorders and self-harm. Bajar also said teenagers are regularly subjected to unwanted sexual advances. Arturo Bihar laid the responsibility squarely on META executives, including Mark Zuckerberg. One, META knows the harm that kids experience on their platform, and the executives know that their measures fail to address it. Two, there are actionable steps that META could take to address the problem. And three, they are deciding time and time again to not tackle these issues. In California, a boat captain was convicted of criminal negligence for the 2019 deaths of 34 people aboard a scuba diving vessel that caught fire and sank south of Santa Barbara. Thirty-three passengers and one crew member died. Jerry Boylan abandoned ship, jumped overboard, saving his own life. He faces up to 10 years in prison. In labor news, negotiators with the SAG-AFTRA Actors Union are resuming talks with Hollywood studios today in hopes of hammering out an agreement to end the nearly four-month-long strike. SAG-AFTRA said Monday the two sides still remain at odds on certain issues, including artificial intelligence, after studios put forward their last, best and final offer. The Supreme Court appears poised to uphold a federal ban on gun possession for people under domestic violence restraining orders. This comes more than a year after the far-right majority on the Supreme Court struck down a century-old New York law that limited the carrying of concealed handguns outside the home and requiring new gun laws to adhere to historic centuries-old gun standards. As the justices heard oral arguments inside the courthouse Tuesday, gun safety and violence prevention advocates rallied outside the Supreme Court. I've been hesitant to share my story, but I know the importance of using my voice in these spaces because I know many other victims of abuse are not able to share their stories. And even worse, many of them have not been able to leave their situations alive. And there is no doubt in my mind that if my abuser was able to get their hands on a gun, the stab wound on my chest that I look at every morning would have been a gunshot wound, and I would not be standing in front of you all today. <sighs> a decision in the case is not expected until next June. And in related news, on Friday, the Supreme Court agreed to hear a case challenging the 2018 federal ban on bump stocks, which can turn semi-automatic rifles into fully automatic machine guns. The ban came in the wake of a 2017 mass shooting in Las Vegas when a gunman opened fire on a country music festival, killing 60 people, injuring hundreds. He fired more than a thousand rounds during the massacre thanks to the use of bump stocks. 
And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. When we come back, we'll look at how Democrats and supporters of reproductive rights scored major victories in Tuesday's election. Back in 30 seconds. Well, we know where we're going, but we don't know where we've been. And we know what we're knowing, but we can't say what we've seen. To Nowhere by Talking Heads. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show with results from Tuesday's election, which included major victories for abortion rights advocates after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year. In Ohio, voters overwhelmingly approved a state constitutional amendment to, quote, make and carry out one's own reproductive decisions, including contraception, abortion, fertility treatment and miscarriage care. Republicans had tried to derail the measure with misinformation and undemocratic procedural changes. And the conservative legal activist Leo Leonard's Dark Money Network spent $18 million opposing it. In Kentucky, Democratic Governor Andy Beshear was reelected in the otherwise red state, defeating Republican Trump-endorsed Attorney General Daniel Cameron, who backed the state's near-total abortion ban and is known for calling the police killing of Breonna Taylor in Louisville justified. In Virginia, Democrats maintained control of the state Senate and ended Republican control of the House after a campaign focused heavily on abortion rights. The victory will block Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin from enacting parts of his far-right agenda, including a ban on abortions after 15 weeks. For more on all of this, we're joined in Madison, Wisconsin, by John Nichols, the nation's national affairs correspondent, and in Boston by Amy Littlefield, abortion access correspondent at The Nation. We welcome you both back to Democracy Now! Amy, let's begin with you. Um, clearly across the country, the choice was choice. Can you talk first about Ohio and what happened there and take us to Mississippi, to Virginia and Kentucky? Amy, before I start, I just want to thank you and the entire team at Democracy Now! for your coverage of Gaza. Thank you for reminding us why we need independent media in this moment. Um, and thank you for bringing us a modicum of hope during this horrific Israeli bombardment in the form of voices of resistance around the world speaking out demanding a ceasefire now. Um, and I feel honored to be able to add my own tiny ray of hope this morning, Amy, um, to the show. And that is that in Ohio, voters resoundingly approved a measure to enshrine abortion rights as well as the right to continue a pregnancy, to seek contraception, to seek miscarriage care and fertility treatments in the Ohio state constitution. Was it close? It was not close. 57% of voters last I checked approved this measure. And they did so despite an overwhelming amount of official misinformation. I mean, starting with the fact that the summary that voters saw in the ballot box 
referred to the unborn child and had misleading information that was approved by the Ohio State Supreme Court, which, fun fact, the Ohio governor, Mike DeWine's son, sits on that um, that court. Um, it came after um, Ohio Republicans on the official state Senate website which the Associated Press pointed out is privileged in search results because it's an official website, were using inflammatory language referring to the dismemberment of children in order to defeat this ban. It comes after an attempt to kneecap direct democracy in the state by making it harder to pass initiatives like this over the summer, which Ohio voters saw through and resoundingly defeated. And then for good measure, you saw Secretary of State Frank uh, LaRose come in and purge 30,000 Ohio voters from the rolls at the last minute. And still, Ohio voters resoundingly approved this abortion rights amendment. Ohio is the seventh state to vote directly on abortion rights after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, and it is the seventh state to go for the abortion rights position. So we are 7-0 and now for the pro-choice position. Um, and importantly, it is the first state that is Republican-led to vote on a proactive pro-choice amendment amendment like this with this swirling official misinformation. And, um, you know, there is an important caveat here, Amy, which is that the amendment in Ohio does allow abortion to be banned after viability. Um, a lot of abortion rights supporters I talked to saw this as a concession that wasn't necessary. And I think looking at the overwhelming margin that this passed by and the fact that the anti-abortion forces in the state were using inflammatory language about abortion up until birth and abortion at every stage of pregnancy, regardless of the fact that this allowed the legislature to ban abortion after viability, except to, to save the health of the pregnant person should raise questions about um, concessions like that in the future. But I think the overwhelming message, Amy, coming out of the election on Tuesday is that voters are still big mad about the Dobbs decision. And I have to say, you know, after I came on the show, you know, following the Kansas results last summer, and then after the midterms, at every step of the way, media pundits are saying, are people still mad about Dobbs? Or are they going to stay mad about Dobbs? Or is that anger going to fade? I'm sorry, Amy, this is insulting to insinuate that. It's not like we all experienced a moment of collective hysteria after the Dobbs decision and all got our periods and got mad temporarily and then forgot that Republicans single-handedly overturned a 50-year-old constitutional right. Yes, voters are still angry about it. Yes, they see through the Republican misinformation. Yes, abortion rights are popular and always have been. Um, and voters overwhelmingly demonstrated that on Tuesday. And Amy, I'm wondering if you could talk about the Pennsylvania Supreme Court election, which has also garnered uh, quite an uh, amount of attention. Can you talk about the, the, the candidates there and their backgrounds? Yes. So, I mean, state Supreme Courts are hugely important, Juan, of course, for a whole array of rights, including voting rights. And we saw the issue of mail-in mail ballots being a crucial issue in Pennsylvania in the last election, of course. So we saw a Democrat um, defeating the Republican candidate, Carolyn Carluccio, who had been among the Republicans who, since the Dobbs decision, have run as fast as they can away from the issue of abortion. She had a resume that referred to herself as a defender of life at all stages, and she scrubbed that from her website um, in the lead up to this election. And so, again, I think we see another spot on the map where abortion rights was a decisive factor um, in booing uh, Democrats to victory um, in a race that is increasingly crucial, not just for abortion rights, but a whole array of progressive priorities across the board. 
Yeah, I'd like to bring in John Nichols, the uh, nation's national affairs correspondent. Uh, John, what's your takeaway uh, from this, uh, uh, the election results and the 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 large number of, quote, Democratic victories? Well, I think it's it is a lot of Democratic victories. In fact, this is one of the best nights for Democrats uh, in a uh, off year election that we've seen in a very, very long time. It's not just the top end results for uh, governor of Kentucky, for the Virginia legislature and things like that. But it's when you burrow down into the results and you go to mayoral races, city council races, school board races, county executive races across the country. It was just a remarkably strong night for Democrats. And what it suggests is that there's something more going on in our politics than the polls and the punditry. And this is a big deal. Uh, We tend to be... uh, because of a lot of the collapse of local media around the country, very reliant on national media outlets that get a poll and then talk about it for a week or have a group of pundits on. Um, and we, we lose sight of you know, these elections around the country, which are not polls, but are actually people voting. And so let me just remind you of a couple of things that had happened last night. In addition to Andy Bashir winning in Kentucky as a supporter of abortion rights and someone who vetoed an anti-trans bill, someone also who marched on the UAW picket line. And Andy Bashir is not a leftist by any means. He's considered to be something of a moderate. But he won in Kentucky on and a lot of issues that are considered to be, you know, kind of hot button issues of the moment. In Virginia, you saw uh, not just a Democratic win for the legislature, but a rebuke to Governor Glenn Youngkin, who tried to make the the race there a referendum on abortion rights and a host of other issues, trying to advance a right-wing agenda. In New Jersey, it looks like Democrats picked up seats in the state legislature. Um, You had the Pennsylvania result you just mentioned. You obviously had the Ohio result you just mentioned. But then when you start to look at places like Allegheny, Allegheny County in Pennsylvania, um, where Sarah Inamorato was elected as county executive to one of the largest counties in the United States as a progressive. Um, you just start seeing result after result after result. And I think the message here comes off something that Amy said. Um, you saw folks you know, compromising on some issues or making concessions on some issues because they were afraid that if they didn't, they couldn't prevail. In reality, the evidence from Tuesday night is that candidates who took some chances, who pushed the limits, who actually went further than expected, did very, very well. And if I can add one final note, at a point where we are seeing so much evidence of Islamophobia in this country, uh, in St. Louis Park, Minnesota, suburban Minneapolis, uh, Nadia Mohammed was elected as the first uh, Muslim mayor, uh, Somali immigrant uh, elected to the mayoralty there, And this is a real breakthrough victory, one of many um, for immigrants around the country and for Muslim candidates around the country. And so I think it's important to recognize that um, when you go into these results, you see this as a a much more progressive country than I think a lot of the pundits would tell you. And John Nichols, um, this whole issue of Youngkin, who was putting forth a uh, what was being called a moderate uh, 15-week ban on abortion and being seen as a possible Republican presidential candidate, now being thwarted um, by the um, legislative victory for Democrats in both houses, uh, this all coming at a time when Biden—and we don't really talk about polls on democracy now. As you say, we consider the poll— 
election day. But the polls right. are showing him at an all-time low. The overturning of Roe v. Wade, uh, it's horrifying to think, might have been quite a gift to Biden, considering how abortion was a theme throughout the country, even when it didn't even seem to be. I mean, Mississippi, you have Reeves winning again, the governor. But he was up against a Democratic challenger, Elvis Presley's second cousin, Brandon Presley, who was anti-choice. That's right. No, look, you're exactly right here. And let's start with that Yonkin uh, result. Um, Glenn Yonkin went all in on this election. He was he was the face of the Republicans in this race. And he was also someone that if we follow presidential politics closely, he realized that a lot of very, very wealthy Republicans were kind of looking at him as a possible last minute entry into the 2024 presidential race. Somebody with backing from really the billionaire class. Yonkin was dealt a horrible setback. Um, he he is now in a position where uh, the talk of you know bringing him into the presidential race I think is going to die very very quickly. And so what you see is that yes, the abortion rights issue is resonant. So too are a number of other issues, including labor rights. And it's notable that a lot of these candidates who won in races around the country were candidates who had stood up for the UAW and its strike, who had stood up for working people in a lot of situations. And again and again and again, what you see is there's evidence that uh, Democrats, when they compromise, when they make concessions, they do worse than they might have done if they had run boldly. And as regards the the polling on Joe Biden, I'll offer you just one thought here. A year out from an election, when you have an incumbent president, you're often going to see polls that show them running poorly. Uh, And then, of course, the pundit class is going to get obsessed with that. They're going to talk about nothing else. But we just had a remarkable intervention here, and that is an election, a relatively nationalized election, where you could ask the question, okay, given the choice, a clear choice, on abortion rights, a clear choice on progressive issues versus going to the right, a clear choice on labor rights, a clear choice on a whole host of other issues. Given that choice across the country in election after election after election, people voted for abortion rights. They voted for labor rights. They voted for progressive values. And uh, for Democrats who often don't get this right, this is a very, very powerful reminder that there's a route forward, but it isn't a route of concession. It's a route of activism and engagement with communities that are rising up and saying they want a different uh, direction, a more progressive direction for this country. And Amy, I'd like to get your sense of how the outcome of, of Tuesday's elections set the stage for 2024 and especially for the future of abortion rights. What's your sense? I mean, Juan, I think crucially, as John pointed out, we saw the failure of the two signature Republican strategies that they were banking on for 2024. The first was this idea of a 15-week limit of a compromise on abortion, right? And Glenn Youngkin was the face of this. He worked closely with Susan B. Anthony List. We've talked about this on the show before, how in the wake of the Dobbs decision, the anti-abortion movement tried to rebrand itself. Bans were not going to be bans anymore. They were going to be limits and compromises. And 15 weeks was supposed to be this, you know, compromises. If voters were going to forget, it was a 15-week ban in Mississippi that got us to the Dobbs decision in the first place and that Mississippi is now living under a total abortion ban and has been for about a year and a half. So I think we can, you know, chalk the the surprising success of the Democratic gubernatorial candidate there. 
partly up to that reality. They haven't forgotten about Dobbs. Um, but we saw this, this strategy of the 15-week compromise fall on its face in Virginia because voters saw right through that. They understood that an abortion ban is a ban. And this was a crucial part of their, you know, Republican strategy to rebrand themselves after the Dobbs decision. Um, it, I think they're going to want to abort that strategy, Juan. I don't see that happening in the next 15 weeks. So unfortunately, I think they're going to have to carry it to term or at least until the next election in 2024. Um, the other signature Republican strategy we saw fall on its face, um, as John pointed out, was, was in Kentucky, where um, somewhere in the order of $6 million was spent by right wing groups attacking Andy Bashir for vetoing an anti for vetoing a, a bill that would have banned gender affirming care for minors. Um, this anti-trans fear mongering, again, did not work. Um, chef's kiss. No notes. I, I love that that, you know, six million dollars might as well have been flushed down the toilet um, for all all that it resonated with Kentucky voters in this in this deep red state or what is known as a deep red state. Um, and so I think Republicans are in serious trouble. Um, and and on the flip side of that, I want to say I don't think Democrats can just lay back and count on abortion rights to save their butts in 2024. We know that Joe Biden is tanking among Arab American voters right now. We know that he's struggling in swing states from The New York Times poll. Um, and, you know, this is a position that abortion rights supporters are not necessarily used to. We're used to abortion being a third rail in American politics and Democrats not taking the issue seriously. All of a sudden, it's looking like Democrats need the abortion rights movement more than the movement needs them. Um, and it's not lost on me um, that while these results were coming in and it was becoming clear that abortion had lifted the boats of Democrats across um, all of the states, you know, from Virginia to Kentucky um, to Ohio and beyond, um, we we saw 22 Democrats in Congress siding with Republicans to censure Rashida Tlaib, who, by the way, is one of the staunchest supporters of reproductive justice that we have in Congress, in addition to being the only Palestinian American. And so I think supporters of abortion rights really need to ask themselves, what are you going to do with this power that you now have? And are you going to compromise or are you going to push the envelope and go big um, and push Democrats who now need this issue in order to win? Amy Littlefield, I want to thank you for being with us, abortion access correspondent for The Nation, John Nichols, The Nation's national affairs correspondent. A perfect segue into our next segment. We'll be playing the full speech of Rashida Tlaib, the only Palestinian-American member of Congress, just before she was censured by the U.S. House of Representatives. Back in 20 seconds. All of the pictures left unpainted All of the games they left unplayed All the laughter in the playground All of the arts they never made Ghost faces of a million Palestinian children All of those voices left in silence Palestinian Children by Peyote for President. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. 
On Tuesday, the House of Representatives voted to censure Democratic Congressmember Rashida Tlaib, the only Palestinian-American in Congress, for her criticism of Israel. The vote was 234 to 188, with 22 Democrats joining Republicans to censure Tlaib. Prior to the vote, the Congresswoman spoke from the House floor. I'm the only Palestinian-American serving in Congress, Mr. Chair, and my perspective is needed here now more than ever. I will not be silenced, and I will not let you distort my words. Folks forget I'm from the city of Detroit, the most beautiful blackest city in the country where I learned to speak truth to power even if my voice shakes. Trying to bully or censor me won't work because this movement for a ceasefire is much bigger than one person. It's growing every single day. There are millions of people across our country who oppose Netanyahu's extremism and are done watching our government support collective punishment and the use of white phosphorus bombs that melt flesh to the bone. They are done watching our government, Mr. Chair, supporting cutting off food, water, electricity, and medical care to millions of people with nowhere to go. Like me, Mr. Chair, they don't believe the answer to war crimes is more war crimes. The refusal of Congress and the administration to acknowledge Palestinian lives is chipping away at my soul. Over 10,000 Palestinians have been killed. Majority, majority were children. But let me be clear. My criticism has always been of the Israeli government and Netanyahu's actions. It is important to separate people and governments, Mr. Chair. No government is beyond criticism. The idea that criticizing the government of Israel is anti-Semitic since a very dangerous precedent, and it's being used to silence diverse voices speaking up for human rights across our nation. Do you realize what it's like, Mr. Chair, for the people outside the chamber right now, listening in agony to their own government dehumanizing them? To hear the President of the United States, we helped elect, dispute death tolls as we see video after video of dead children and parents under rubble. Mr. Chair, do you know what it's like to fear rising hate crimes, to know how Islamophobia and anti-Semitism makes us all less safe, and worry that your own child might suffer the horrors that six-year-old Wadiat did in Illinois. I can't believe I have to say this, but P Palestinian people are not disposable. As Congressmember Rashida Tlaib composed herself, her sister Congresswoman Ilhan Omar put her hand on her shoulder, the only other Muslim woman in Congress. We are human beings, just like anyone else. My city, my grandmother, like all Palestinians, just wants to live her life with freedom and human dignity we all deserve. Speaking up to save lives, Mr. Chair, no matter faith, no matter ethnicity, should not be controversial in this chamber. The cries of the Palestinian and, Palestinian and Israeli children sound no different to me. Why, what I don't understand is why the cries of Palestinians sound different to you all. We cannot lose our shared humanity, Mr. Chair. I hear the voices of advocates in Israel, in Palestine, across America and around the world for peace. I am inspired by their courageous, the courageous survivors in Israel who have lost loved ones, yet are calling for a ceasefire and the end to violence. I am grateful to the, to the people in the streets for the peace, peace movement with countless Jewish Americans across the country standing up and lovingly saying, not in our name. 
We will continue to call for a ceasefire, Mr. Chair, for the immediate delivery of critical humanitarian aid to Gaza, for the release of all hostages and those arbitrarily detained, and for every American to come home. We will continue to work for real lasting peace that upholds human rights and dignity of all people and centers in peaceful coexistence between Israelis and Palestinians and censures no one, not no one, and ensures that no person, no child has to suffer or live in fear of violence. 71% of Michigan Democrats support a ceasefire. So you can try to censor me, but you can't silence their voices. I urge my colleagues to join with the majority of Americans and support a ceasefire now to save as many lives as possible. President Biden must listen to and represent all of us, not just some of us. I urge the president to have the courage to call for a ceasefire and the end of killings. Thank you, and I yield. That's Detroit Congress member Rashida Tlaib, the only Palestinian American speaking on the House floor before the House voted to censure her for her criticism of Israel. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As we continue to cover Israel's bombardment of Gaza, we're joined by two guests, one Holocaust survivor, the other one of the world's leading genocide scholars. Omer Bartoff is a professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Brown University. He's the author of numerous books, including most recently Genocide, the Holocaust in Israel-Palestine, First-Person History in Times of Crisis. He is an Israeli-American scholar who's been described by the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum as one of the world's leading specialists on the subject of genocide. He recently signed an open letter warning of Israel committing a potential genocide in Gaza. We're also joined by Mariung Ingram. She's an 87-year-old Holocaust survivor who's been protesting outside the White House, calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Longtime activist who was an organizer with SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, in the 1960s. She's the author of The Hands of War, A Tale of Endurance and Hope from a Survivor of the Holocaust, and Hands of Peace, a Holocaust survivor's fight for civil rights in the American South. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Uh, we're going to begin with Marion Ingram. Uh, before we talk about the ceasefire in Gaza, I'd like you to respond to the censuring of the only Palestinian-American member of Congress, Rashida Tlaib, whose speech we just played. I totally uh, support uh, her comments. And I think it is, on top of that, shameful that her justified defense of human lives is considered anti-Semitic. It is pro-human beings. I find it horrific that the politicians have the nerve to censure righteous voices for peace and for the lives of Gazans who are being murdered. It is slaughter that is happening. And Rashida Talib is, in my eyes, a hero. Uh, Netanyahu's government uh, Israel's policies for decades has been the suppression of Palestinians, land grabs, uh, deprivation of Palestinians. 
it is painful for me as uh, as someone who has experienced all of the terrors that Gazans are experiencing, and even the uh, horrific attacks in Israel by Hamas. But uh, Hamas attack on Israel does not justify the slaughter of women and children, especially children. I was a child of war. I have experienced all of these things. I have also, I've also known for a fact that what Israel is doing will not end this conflict. It will only exacerbate it. It will increase resistance to anything. I think that Biden needs to defund uh, all of the money that is given to Israel. I think he should not only call for a ceasefire, I think he needs to start thinking about peace. We cannot continue to make wars and then call for ceasefires only to have wars start again after the ceasefire ends. We've experienced this over and over and over again. I am so tired of having to protest everything, wars, gun violence, the war against women. It is ridiculous that we are not able to think clearly. My husband has an expression, and that is all about the Benjis. I think that uh, the happiest people in the universe must be the manufacturers of armaments. Uh, and, and probably are also complicit in the promotion. The fact that, that the United States is complicit in this murder of children is to me a horrific uh, indictment of inhumanity. And I applaud uh, Rashida Tlaib with all of my heart, with all of my being. Uh, I think she's fantastic. I just wish that there were more voices uh, to join her uh, in uh, the house. Uh, Marion Ingram, I wanted to ask you, you grew up in uh, Hamburg, Germany in the late 1930s and early 1940s. Could you tell us uh, and to our audience some of your experiences that shaped and determined and, and uh, made you want to participate in these protests in Washington against the, uh, the Israeli bombardment and invasion of Gaza? Uh, because I, uh, well, I am a Jew, my mother was a Jew, um, uh, my family was murdered in 1941. Uh, my Jewish family was murdered in 1941. Hamburg Jews were sent to uh, Minsk in Belarusia where upon arrival uh, they were stripped and then shot and dumped into a mass grave. My grandmother was taken to, <coughs> by, the, by two Gestapo who came uh, to my mother's apartment uh, and took her away the night before I turned six years old. The, uh, from about the time I was three years old, I was aware that I was uh, the object of hate uh, of the German uh, 
of the German government, the German country. It was made clear by made clear by Claire a playmate who told me that she wouldn't play with me because I was a dirty Jew pig. I had no idea what, what she was talking about. The S are this horrific war against uh, Jews and Germans who uh, protested the Nazi regime uh, progressed. Uh, it uh, got worse. My mother had to go to the uh, Gestapo every week. Uh, the only reason we were not taken in 1941 was because my mother had married a non-Jew. Uh, and this saved us in 1941. Uh, but in 1943, uh, the Nazis said that all Jewish spouses were to be exterminated as well. And in 1943, in the summer of 1943, my mother got uh, our deportation order to Theresienstadt. My mother tried to commit suicide uh, in the hopes that uh, my father's relatives would take in her children, in the hope that she would uh, be able to save uh, her three daughters. She had sent me off to one of the relatives who was instrumental uh, in, uh, in helping us. Uh, but, and I had, never, I had not been allowed to be outside uh, since the Nazis uh, came to power. And it struck me as very odd. I was seven and a half that she let me take my baby sister uh, to uh, my father's cousin, and I turned around and I found my mother with her head in the in the gas oven, and I pulled her out, and my mother lived and uh, never had uh, another such moment, and was. <clears throat> After that, the Allies bombed the city of Hamburg. It was called Operation Gomorrah. The Brits are uh, bombed at night. The, uh, the Americans bombed during the day. It was a 10-day and 10-night uninterrupted bombing. My mother and I were not allowed in a bomb shelter. Uh, we were forced to run through flaming streets. The Allies dropped phosphorus, and I saw human beings jumping into, uh, into the lake and the canals uh, and coming up. They were like human candles. Their bodies were in flame, and every time they jumped into the canals and lakes, the flames would be... Uh, doused, but the minute they came up for air, they would be uh, in, in flames. As a seven-and-a-half-year-old, I saw more dead bodies burned to a crisp. Unf uh, two things. I'm a pacifist, and it is ironic that this horrific uh, revenge uh, 
attack on civilians. It was entirely targeted on civilians. Uh, saved my life because there were so many burned bodies that could not be identified that I was able to go into, we were able to go into hiding. Uh, this was arranged, my father was in the underground. Uh, he had managed to uh, arrange for us to be hidden uh, in a sort of ex-urban farm outside the city of Hamburg uh, by communist uh, underground members of the elderly couple who hid us were not uh, pro-Semitic, but they were virulently anti-Nazi. And uh, we were in hiding in a tar paper shack uh, when there were no people, when there were uh, no people around. When there were people around, we had to go hide in an earthen dugout. And on my eighth birthday, uh, on 19th November 1943, in the earthen dugout, I told my mother that if I lived, I would never, ever be quiet, and that I wanted to become a peacemaker. Well, I've never—I've kept that promise. I have not been able to make—to uh, figure out how I can get governments to make peace, uh, but I continue to— battle on all fronts. I have battled when I came to America. Uh, as a 17-year-old, I saw that America was a racist country, and I became active in the civil rights movement. I uh, Marion, in, in part two yes, of our conversation, sorry. we're going to talk about your history in the civil rights movement. Um, but just before we go to the Israeli-American genocide historian, um, uh, Omer Bartov, uh, just if you could share a message to the world um, about what never again means to you. To me, it would mean never again to repeat the horrors that we have uh, committed throughout my lifetime and of certainly uh, before that. Uh, nothing has been learned from uh, the atrocities uh, of the uh, mid-20th century, the continued atrocities in Vietnam, Iraq, and, and Afghanistan. Uh, We've been holding signs of you calling for a ceasefire. Yeah, I, I want more than that. I want peace. I'm disgusted at the fact that not a single nation, not a single leader has even mentioned that word, as though that is a word of—a uh, dangerous word. There, there has to be a way of bringing together warring parties. When the Allies attacked Hamburg, Germany, thinking that that would weaken the— uh, military uh, conflict, it only strengthened it. What uh, Israel is doing in, in Gaza, in the West Bank, and has been doing, is only going to strengthen uh, 
the uh, attack on Israel, you cannot expect that people will be quiet after what uh, we've all witnessed. I say, yeah. stop, stop <clears throat> this uh, madness. Yeah, I, I'd like to bring in Professor uh, Omar Bartov, uh, one of the uh, most uh, prominent uh, scholars of Holocaust and genocide studies. Uh, your sense, uh, Professor Bartov, of what Israel is doing right now in Gaza? Uh, well, good morning and thank you for having me. Um, look, what, what Israel is doing right now, according to its own uh, political leaders and military commanders, is um, attempting to destroy uh, Hamas, which is the, the hegemonic power in Gaza at the moment, and it claims to be doing it, A, uh, as retaliation for the heinous attack on October 7th, where over a thousand civilians were butchered, and 240 people were kidnapped and are still kept in Gaza. Uh, but he claims to be doing it also um, because it it feels that without doing that, um, it would be um, permanently under threat uh, from that organization. So that's its own uh, position. The problem with this position is not only is the massive and excessive and disproportionate killing of civilians um, of, of Palestinian civilians in Gaza uh, during this operation, uh, but also that it doesn't have any clear political horizon. It is not clear what the day after would look like. And the, the reason the Israeli government does not want to talk about that is that um, it does not want to have any sort of compromise with the Palestinians. And that has been the policy of the Netanyahu administration or many administrations uh, for decades now. Uh, and Netanyahu actually uh, kept Hamas uh, quite strong and kept the Palestinian leadership in the West Bank quite weak so that he could say that he could not find any representative of the Palestinians who would be willing to sit down and find a compromise while at the same time, uh, he was busy, he and of course, uh, the settlers who are now heavily represented in his government could keep uh, settling in the West Bank. So the larger context of this is that the refusal of the Israeli government to find any kind of compromise with the Palestinians, and frankly, the indifference of the large part, the majority of the Israeli population to the occupation is what led and keeps leading to this ongoing um, and, and increasingly uh, violent confrontation between Israel and the Palestinians. Professor Omar Bartov, uh, we're going to continue with part two of our conversation posted at democracynow.org. Brown University professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies. Uh, called by the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum one of the world's leading specialists on the subject of genocide. And Marion Ingram, 87-year-old Holocaust survivor, about to turn 88. We thank you for sharing your experience. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.